All right, we are going to continue our Ask Anything series this morning. Uh, our question today is actually two questions from two different people, and I thought there was enough overlap between these two questions, so I decided to give it a go. And uh, when we titled the series Ask Anything, we want people to feel the freedom to ask anything, to actually do that. And sometimes that seems like a great idea up front. Um, but when you get the really tough questions, sometimes it makes you ask yourself, what were you thinking uh, when some of those questions come? And so one of the questions we're tackling today is what you would consider a hot button question. And so I have felt the weight in a pretty substantial way um, wanting to interact with this question in a way that is helpful and gracious. So here's our two questions uh, that we're tackling today. First of all, what does the Bible say about overseers? And then secondly, can women preach? So I thought I'd spend about 35 minutes answering the first question and then give you a one-word answer on the second question and then just wrap it up right there. Not really. Not really. That's not what I'm going to do. So, but as you guys have been enjoying your summers this week, I've been sweating bullets uh, wrestling with this question. So here's our plan for this morning. Well, we're going to look a little bit about what the New Testament says about overseers, uh, make a few observations about that, then I'm going to answer the question uh, from the perspective of Center Church, can women preach? And then answer the question, why does God say this. So let me pray for us, and then we will jump into this. God, thanks so much for this morning. Uh, would you give me wisdom and grace to be able to convey um, helpfully this morning? And I pray that our hearts would be tender and sensitive um, as we wrestle with these issues. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me read. I just want to read a couple of passages here for us this morning two passages in the New Testament that talk about overseers, and then we'll dive into this reality. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And then from the book of Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, 
self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so there's a lot there. There's a lot there. 30,000 feet, okay? We're going to stay at 30,000 feet with this. If you're looking for like a, a well, like research, like going through all of the phrases here, that's not happening this morning, okay? We just, we don't have time for that. But I, I want to make just a few 30,000 foot observations about these two chunks of verses. So, first of all, overseers are charged with the spiritual leadership of the church, okay? This is the role of overseers, to spiritually lead Jesus' church. So the Bible will use other terms as well for this role, like elder or pastor or shepherd. But here at Center Church, we've chosen to utilize the word overseer. So the church, at other points in the New Testament, Jesus will refer to it, others will refer to it as Jesus' bride. So when we hear this, we should hear that God loves his church in a special way, in a sacrificial way. This is how God feels about his church. It is his bride. And so this is why overseers must cling to the gospel. What it says here in these verses, to hold firm to the trustworthy word. Overseers must cling to the gospel. And then the reason for this is so they will relentlessly point people to Jesus. It says here, to give instruction in sound doctrine. And then also to protect the church from spiritual deception. What it says here is to rebuke those who contradict it. So the overseers are charged to cling to the gospel, to believe the gospel, so then that they can teach the gospel and help others to cling to the gospel as well. And in all of this, to help protect the church as well. And, and this whole idea is the same image we see in Jesus when the New Testament talks about him being a shepherd who cares for his sheep, but then he calls his disciples to feed my sheep. Now, Jesus' church is the most important unit in this world. This is what God would say. It is the most important unit in this world. More important than even a family unit. And this really presses against some of our conceptions of how we view family. But this is what, this is what the New Testament is going to convey to us. The church is the most important unit. And so then, why there are overseers put in charge of a church is for health. And the idea being then that health begets health. And so Jesus cares deeply about his church, so he wants his church to be healthy, and he wants individuals to be put in roles to help care for and to promote health. So overseers are charged with the spiritual leadership of the church. Secondly, the qualifications that we read here are primarily character-focused. Do you notice this? They're not skill 
focus. That, that's mostly what's being talked about in these verses. So in these lists, there's really one main skill that's mentioned, and that's the idea of teaching and or preaching. That's really the only skill that's mentioned. But when you read through these lists, and you then think about what many pastors are regarded for today, many pastors are regarded for their skills. That, that's why they're hired. But when we understand this reality, you can see why many pastors are eliminating themselves from ministry because they were recruited as entrepreneurs or they were hailed for their dynamic personality or their ability to entertain a crowd. That's why they were hired into the position of pastor. And so what we see is that the celebrity-obsessed mindset that is in our culture has also overtaken churches and church contexts which has resulted in the degradation of pastoral ministry and, and even abusive pastors being put into their roles and then they stay in, their, in those roles even while they abuse because people will say, well, the church is growing. And so because the church is growing, they try and look away from or dismiss these other realities that are going on. But this will, like this whole idea when there's issues, that's not going to go away. Eventually, if there's issues, that's going to come out over time. Sin and dysfunction cannot be hidden forever. So the list of disgraced Christian leaders is ever-growing. You guys have probably, some of you might recognize some of these pictures of these individuals. Mark Driscoll, Bill Hybels, James McDonald, Carl Lentz, Ravi Zacharias. These are just some of these individuals. Maybe some of you have heard of some of these names. But these are individuals who became very well known and then just tanked churches for whatever reason because of sinful realities. And so there's a reason that in these lists that we're reading about that there's an, an overwhelming emphasis on character. There's no debate that I'm trying to create right here in terms of who has a harder job, okay? But ministry involves ongoing suffering. People get mad at spiritual leaders simply at times when we try to care for them. That might come through because a spiritual leader will ask a hard question or they'll push into a certain area of someone's life. P people are going to leave a church. Relationships are severed, not by one's own choice. And how someone responds in the midst of those hardships will reveal who they are, but also will indicate whether they are fit to lead others in this type of a context. And this is one reason why those in spiritual leadership need to be qualified in the way that's listed here in these verses, why they need to be gentle why they need to be self-controlled, why they cannot be quarrelsome. And to develop this a little bit further, when a church leader does not act in these ways, what they are going to do is they're going to lie about the gospel. They're going to tell lies about what the gospel says about who Jesus is and what he has done. If someone lashes out at anger at me, 
for my leadership, I can engage with those people in a couple of different ways. I can lash out in anger at them, or I can engage with them graciously. Now, if I lash out in anger, what this is going to communicate to these people is kind of what we read in the Old Testament. Old Testament morality, this idea of an eye for an eye. Well, you give me anger, wrath, I'm going to give you anger, wrath as well. Furthermore, what this says about the gospel in this type of an instance is that the gospel is a message of performance, that it's a works-based message. In order for someone to receive kindness from me, they must first be kind to me. This is the antithesis of the gospel. When we are, as we read earlier, when we are enemies of God, He bears with us. He pursues us. He chases after us graciously. Now, if I were to respond graciously to someone with my demeanor being gentle, if I listen thoughtfully to their concerns, consider how I might have erred in the situation, really try to understand why someone is feeling anger, all of this embodies the core reality of grace in the gospel. Someone doesn't have to perform perfectly to still be loved. And when they receive love in this type of situation, if they freak out on me and I'm able to return love to them, all the more when they encounter the grace of the gospel, when they encounter love, will they want to love? Maybe not in that moment. But as they experience this, and if this can take hold of their heart, there's a much better chance that they will want to respond in love to others later in life. And this is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why Christian leaders need to be shaped by the gospel. Because we have a message that we're speaking, but people need to see this. They need to experience this as they interact with us as well. And so, being an overseer, as it says here in these verses, it says it is a noble task. This is a role that has immense importance, that is needed. But character cannot be compromised. And and this is why I need people speaking into my life as well. This is why overseers need people speaking into their lives as well. Character cannot be assumed because once it's assumed, it opens up the door for all kinds of messiness. Okay, so the qualifications for overseers are primarily character-focused, not skill-focused. Third, if you were paying attention to these verses, what you probably heard as we're reading this is that the overseer role is reserved for men. Now, when you hear this, this is going to be a jarring statement for some of you. Some of you, you maybe grew up in context like this, and you think that that is normal. But for some of us, this is likely a jarring statement. But as we read these verses, if you look closely, it stated it in both of these passages that an overseer is a husband of one wife. So, With this, 
What I want to do now is I want to transition to the second question of can women preach? Because it's directly tied to this idea. So what I want to do here in answering this question is I want to make a couple of introductory comments uh, to just kind of set the stage for where we're going to go here for the next bit. So first of all, we cannot cover everything. There's so much more that could be said about this issue and this topic. And, and I would say I would be more than happy to engage in this conversation with you at another time. Okay, so if you have questions that are going to arise from what's talked about this morning, I want to encourage you, raise those questions. And let's work through those things. I am not going to not cover everything this morning because I'm scared to or because I don't want to. It's, It's merely a matter of time for us this morning. Okay, secondly, my hope is even if you disagree with Center Church's stated stance on this, that you would affirm trust and thankfulness in how we talk about it. So the cultural norm that we find is that once disagreement exists, we want to cancel someone else. So we might agree with someone on nine out of ten points, but because of that one point of disagreement, we're just going to cancel them. We're going to say, I'm done with this relationship. I want to push against that. As Christians, we should wholeheartedly disagree with that way of living. And I I would point out, even to live that way is antithetical to the whole idea of tolerance and diversity. Our intent here at Center Church is to be known for our love. This is what we know about Jesus, right? He loves people sacrificially, And this should be the case for us here at Center Church and especially for those in spiritual leadership. Now, I've tried to think hard about this topic, to study hard. This is something I've spent time on for years as well. So this is, I didn't just pick this up this past week. But I want to study hard on this. I want to think thoroughly about this because my intention is never to mock someone in the way I talk about this, to taunt someone, uh, to be flippant or disrespectful around this conversation because I realize people have had very hard experiences around this issue. Even a church in the Twin Cities is dealing, just this past week, it's blowing up in their church around this reality. And so I want to talk about this. I want to engage in this in ways that anyone would be able to say, I trust you and how you're going to talk about this issue. Lastly then, disagreement on this issue does not exclude someone from fellowship or membership. We don't hold this issue as a salvific issue. We we have had members who go through our membership interviews and through that time, say, I disagree with you on this issue. But I appreciate how you talk about it. I appreciate how you're not centralizing this as the most important thing. And so there is room at the table if you disagree with us on this issue. We are never going to be in your face about this issue. 
we have had people come to our church and be here for over a year. And when they hear about our stance on this, they're surprised. So we're talking about it today because it's a question that was asked, and it's a legitimate question. And so we're not trying to hide our position. We're just, I'm saying, this is not a central part of who we are necessarily. And also we're preaching on it because I want there to be understanding as well. Okay, so this last point speaks to the diversity of how this question can be answered. And you will find a range of answers to this question. Some churches are going to say yes, women can preach. Other churches are going to say, no, women cannot preach. And each of these churches is answering in a way with varying motivations. Typically, both sides are going to try and go to the Bible and say, this is, this is how we support our position. But usually there's something beyond that as well. Some people are going to answer this question out of hurt, out of oppression that they have experienced. Other people are going to answer it because they are oppressors. And we have to acknowledge that this does happen. We must acknowledge that women have been oppressed in horrific ways by the church. This has happened. As a spiritual leader, it's my responsibility, no matter where we might fall on this issue, to ensure women are not oppressed in any way. We'll come back to that in a little bit. If we look at practical realities and how the Bible speaks about males and females, what we see, what we cannot escape, is that male and females are equal. They are equal in every sense of the word, in, in, in their value. The capacity and ability of women and men are on par in many ways. And so what the Bible is going to do over and over, that, that the traditional view that men are better, and however that, whatever form that might take, the Bible is going to obliterate that idea. Men are not better. Men and women are equal. But the Bible does speak to this issue, okay? The passages we just read, um, also 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 14, these are other places you can go and, and see where the Bible is going to talk about this. So as Christians, we have to wrestle with these verses. We, we can't just Thomas Jefferson these verses. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible. He took a pair of scissors and he cut out the parts that he didn't like. And so he just kind of made the Bible what he wanted it to be. So we, we can't be honest Christians and do that. And, and also, we can't just dismiss these verses because they, they were written in a different culture. We, we've got to engage with them. So given the context of these verses, let me give the position of Center Church, and then I want to work through this a little bit. So Center Church holds to a position that God's design is for men to hold the position of overseer. And as part of that then, and to preach as well. So up front, like this is countercultural. We understand this is countercultural. Now, what I want to do this morning, rather than working through the basis for this conclusion, which is kind of answering the what question, I want to spend the remainder of our time answering why. Why would God 
say this? Why, why would God invoke this precedent? Or precedent? And, and furthermore, um, why he would consider it to be good? Why would he do that? Because this is a question that many people will ask today, and I think it's kind of the question behind the question of can women preach as well? Because in our day, the idea is not viewed, at least where we would stand on this issue, is not considered good by many people. Okay, so there's two ways I want to answer this this morning, okay? The first involves care, God's care for humanity, and the second is symbolism. Symbolism is something that we talk about quite a bit here at Center Church that I think is totally, almost totally overlooked by most of us when we read our Bibles. Okay, so first of all, though, is care. The fact that God would say this, I'm going to argue, is an expression of God's care. Now, when I say this, this might not compute for some of you. You you might say, I have no idea how this can be caring on God's part. This perspective might seem oppressive to you. Now, some of the trickiness, I would say, of this idea is bound up in how we view this type of role, or maybe how many churches, and churches are going to view this differently, but how they view this role of overseer. Because the reality is, in our culture, we have been trained to think of the role of overseer as a position of power. And I think that's how many of us tend to view that type of role. That is not how we talk about the role of overseer at Center Church. Not at all. It is not a position of power. Though there is a level of authority attached to this role, we try to be really clear and to speak on plenty of occasions that the role of overseer is a role of servanthood. So when someone becomes an overseer, they view themselves as someone who's going to get their hands dirty, whose knees are going to be dirty, figuratively speaking, because they're washing the feet of the church. This is a role where we come underneath you. We're not standing over, domineering. We're coming underneath people and serving them. And so, in many ways, at Center Church, overseer is not a glamorous position. There is no shortage of hardship in this role. And this is not to say that women are not capable of handling hard things at all. Women handle many hard things, oftentimes better than men. I mean, I think about so many stories I hear when the husbands get sick at home and the wives kind of roll their eyes and be like, all right, here, I've got to put up with this pansy, like, doing this thing, right? Like, there's this reality. Women are not less tough than men. And the role of women here at Center Church, I would say, and in your personal lives demonstrates your toughness. So again, this is not an issue of capacity. It's an issue of care. The role of overseers involves rejection. It involves the willingness to put oneself in harm's way. It involves sacrifice. 
there are many aspects of ministry that I share with my wife, but there are other aspects of ministry that I choose not to share with her because I know how painful it would be for her. I know how it might affect her view of someone or something. And so what I want you to hear in this is my deprivation my, or my withholding from her in this regard is not a form of deprivation. And it's not even an instance where I'm saying, you can't handle this. This is how I'm trying to love her so that she doesn't have to handle it. I'm trying to cultivate joy for her. I'm trying to cultivate, cultivate life for her. And I would say I do this far from perfectly. And she would yes and amen that as well. But this is my attempt to love and serve her as my wife and as a pastor's wife. In the same way, I wouldn't ask my wife to contend with an intruder in the home, like I would push her down the steps. You say, you go deal with that person and I'll follow you. I've got your back. In the same way, I'm not going to do that to her. God cares for his church by asking a few qualified, not notice, not all men, a few qualified men to lead his church. Sacrificial love is a core component of the gospel. And we see this demonstrated here in e- he, even in how the church is ordered. Okay, so, so God does this as a way to demonstrate his care for his church. There's a further reason why God designed things in this way, and it relates to the idea of symbolism. We've bumped into, into symbolism in our study in the book of Revelation, and I, I try and highlight whenever or wherever we are in the Bible, but it's a foreign concept to many of us. And, and so w- what tends to happen is that the Bible is like this with symbolism, okay? So there's a lot of nuance. But what we tend to do when we read the Bible is we read the Bible as kind of a straight line. We turn it into a question and answer book. And so we just want, what, what does God say about this thing? And we just look for this straight line and we miss out on all the nuance that's going on throughout the biblical story. And so if we were to read the Bible on this issue, just looking for an answer, then many people would conclude, well, no. But, but this is why we've got to ask the why question. Why would God do this? You know, we don't want to just end up at that spot and say, well, God says they can't, women can't preach because Eve sinned or because women are weaker, weaker or because Adam was formed first. Because those are just trite and simplistic and, and not really dealing with the nuance of what's going on in the biblical story. So the second reason why this is the case is because it is symbolic and is expressing something bigger than just answering our modern question. So it's going to take a little work for me to get to the symbolic. So hang with me on this. Um, but we'll get there eventually. So Paul grounds, it, it, part of Paul's argument goes back to 1 Timothy 2, 
Okay, and, and I didn't read those verses this morning, but part of what I'm talking about here is referencing his argument there. And so Paul, when he makes his argument, his teaching about women preaching, he goes back all the way to the first book of the Bible, to Genesis. And so he's looking at things before Adam and Eve sinned. Okay, and he says there that God formed Adam first. But, when Paul is talking about this, he's not conveying the idea that Paul is better, as we've talked about already, or that Paul is, or, or that Adam is more capable, okay? Paul is telling a nuanced, multi-layered story. In forming Adam first, God is denoting him as a leader. He's denoting him as a protector, okay? So, then we should take careful note what happens right after this. Satan disguises himself. And what does he do in the Garden of Eden? What does Satan do? He approaches Eve, right? Notice what's going on here. He's not approaching the leader. He's not approaching the protector. And he is doing this intentionally. What Satan is doing is he is subverting God's design. He is intentionally going to Eve. And so eventually Eve does eat the fruit that is offered to her. And in so doing, it says in Genesis that she seeks to become like God. And then Eve also shares that with Adam as well. So in this whole idea of eating the fruit and feeding, what we need to understand is there's a bigger biblical theme going on here. And, and throughout the whole of the Bible, there's a strong connection between feeding and teaching. Okay? That they're interrelated. They're connected, this idea of feeding and teaching. And so even when we go back here to the beginning of the Bible, we should be able to read that through this New Testament lens and see that there are symbolic realities being communicated regarding teaching as well. And so the image here that we're given in Genesis is that Eve is feeding or teaching her husband. And we might say, what's the big deal with that? A wife has many things to teach her husband. And I would say yes and amen to that. My wife is so vital to me. My wife is much smarter than I am. She's the thinker in our family. She helps me think through so many things. She teaches me many things. We talk about my sermons. She helps put together so many of my sermons through the conversations that we have with one another. And so in a normal marriage, in our context, it's a legitimate question What's the big deal? Because this is a healthy component of how marriages should function here and now. But Adam and Eve represent something much bigger than themselves. In a way, they're representing all of humanity. And so when Eve teaches Adam, this reverses the design set in place by God. And, and Paul in the New Testament is going to communicate this idea that they're deceived in this. And, and here's what I want you to hear. The ultimate problem in all of this 
is what it says about Jesus and his church. Okay, that's the ultimate problem, what this is saying about Jesus and his church. So similar to how a marriage is intended to depict the gospel, okay? Marriage is intended to tell the gospel story. The man is the Christ figure who sacrificially lays his life down for his wife. He serves his wife. He dies for his wife. So no man should ever be able to say it's easy, that my job is easier than my wife's. No, the man sets the tone. He dies for his wife, for the good of his wife. The man is the Christ figure, and the woman is the church figure. This is what we're taught in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. So also what happens here as preaching occurs in a church context, this is not merely a transfer of information. What happens on a Sunday morning is part of God telling his story symbolically. What happens here is is we are trying to embody the gospel in a sense. So as a few qualified men stand in front of you and bear the weight of leading Jesus' church, you sit and receive the good news of Jesus. As a wife is intended to receive her husband's love, she displays how we, through the gospel, receive grace, receive salvation. So here, hear this. The ultimate danger in Eve feeding Adam is it portrays the gospel in a way that it's wrong. What it communicates is that the church feeds Jesus. Humanity does not feed Jesus. We don't provide anything to God whatsoever. We don't feed God with our good works. The church exists to herald the good news of Jesus. And this good news is woven even into the fabric of the church in many ways. The idea that preaching is reserved for a few men has nothing to do with a woman's capacity or ability. It has everything to do with the story that God is writing and unfolding before our eyes. It has everything to do with creation. And this has everything to do with the gospel. And so we want to exist to tell the gospel in the words that we say and in the lives that we live and even in how we order our services here at Center Church. We want to tell the gospel. We want to believe it. We want to show its power. And we want to see people saved by it. Let me end with just a few statements here. Closing affirmations. As I have said, this is not saying women can't ever preach or teach. There are many venues where we would say it is very appropriate, and not just appropriate, but good for women to be teaching and preaching. I'm not even getting into the whole context of there's another conversation about what's preaching, what's teaching, and these are two different words used in the Greek in the New Testament. There's another whole conversation we can have about that. But, But we would also say we want to unleash women to utilize their gifts 
to the fullest extent possible. And I think this is why some people have come back to us and been surprised about this is your position at Center Church. When we think and talk about this topic, we want to focus on the many opportunities that women are able to step into. We want to encourage women to lead, to teach in ways, in, in any way, in every way that it is helpful. And we would say that the healthy functioning of Center Church is dependent on the flourishing of women. And so, as spiritual leaders, these men are called to take into consideration women and their voices. It's not as though we've got like a good old boys club that we get together and we have these jokes that we tell. No, we are called as spiritual leaders to do the work to include the voices in whatever ways necessary so that those voices are at the table and that they're being heard and that in this case, women's voices are not being suppressed or women are not being overlooked in any way. And so we don't ever want to communicate or insinuate that a woman is less than. We believe that God's design is for the care, the well-being, and flourishing of women because God has created men and women equal. And then lastly here, there is nothing we need to provide to God. This is kind of the gospel-centered takeaway here. There is nothing we need to provide to God. In the gospel, what we hear is that Jesus gives to us. He has done everything for us. And even in the ordering of our Sunday morning gatherings, we want to embody this in, in the best ways we know how through our reading of the Bible. 